over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Well, we're continuing in this big book cover-to-cover series, and we're in the book Haggai. It's amazing to think when we started this how far we've come. Only a couple more books will be in the New Testament, so it does go by quickly. This is the second shortest book in your Old Testament. Obadiah, of course, has 21 verses. We have 38 in the book of Haggai, so it's a very quick read, a very easy read. But as with all of these, don't be surprised. There's a lot there, even though it's a very short paragraph or two in your Bible. Let's get a little context on this book of Haggai and how it fits in a timeline. I don't want to overburden you with dates and timestamps, but this one is important for a number of reasons. This is about 586 BC. What has happened is that the king of Babylon has destroyed the temple complex in Israel. You remember the name Nebuchadnezzar. So he has destroyed the city, the walls, the temple, the worship center, if you will, and people are in exile in Babylon. During this time period, there are some relief where Cyrus, the king of Persia, comes on about 50 years later, and he starts letting Israelites go home, go back to their land. But they're going back to a destroyed place. And this is about 536 BC, and in three separate, let's call them repatriations, he lets the Jews go home. But as they go home, uh, they've got big projects to do. And the prophets were instructing them, you have to rebuild. You have to rebuild the temple complex first and foremost. So this is how it starts out. They start out rebuilding, but then they stop. And there's a 16-year halt in the building program. Now, the irony of this is it's only going to take them five years to finish. But for 16 years, the building stops. The project is dormant. And this is where Haggai comes in to goad them with four oracles. You need to get to work on what you were supposed to do. God sent you home after your exile. You were punished. Now you are able to go home and rebuild the temple and rebuild the spiritual life that you had walked away from because of your sin. So Haggai comes in, a minor prophet, and it's very interesting because the next book, Zechariah, these dovetail together. What Haggai starts is going to be finished in Zechariah's time. Well, this five years to reboot the project is part of the backdrop. Let's think of the outline just ever so briefly because only 38 verses, you don't have to spend a lot of time looking at it in that regard. And for those of you who do use the New American Standard Bible, a feature that you may or may not be aware of, whenever the verses in your Bible are boldface, that's the editor saying this is a paragraph break. And that's the easiest way to look at the book Haggai because there's four of them that give us the outline. And you can see it on the screen. Verses 1 to 15 in chapter 1 is essentially one section. Chapter 2, 1 to 9, 2, 10 to 19. And then the final three verses, chapter uh, 2, verses 20 to 23. Just a simple outline to show you some framework. So in my Bible, I put lines by those verses so I can see it visually because it is such a short text. 
Let me read from our friends uh, Ken Boa and Bruce Wilkinson's talk through the Bible. They do a good job in a paragraph explaining uh, this backdrop of the story and what we're after as we study the book of Haggai. With the Babylonian exile now history and a newly returned group of Jews back in the land, the work of rebuilding the temple can begin. But 16 years after the process is begun, the people have yet to finish the project. For their personal affairs have interfered with God's business. That phrase to me is the money quote of that paragraph. Their personal affairs have interfered with God's business. And we can apply that real easily in our own lives. They continue, Haggai preaches a fiery series of sermonettes designed to stir up the nation to finish the temple. He calls the builders to renewed courage in the Lord, renewed holiness in life, and renewed faith in God who controls the future. All three of those renewals are worth pondering, are they not? Renewed courage, renewed holiness, and renewed faith in God who controls the future. Apropos for us wondering what's going to happen with the future of COVID-19. Well, this basic or general theme of Haggai is the remnant was to go back to repair the complex, and they didn't. And he's going to explain some of the reasons why. Part of it really the underlying is spiritual indifference. Uh, think of them coming home and where are you going to live? Where are you going to work? Are you going to, when, when we go back to work after COVID-19 is calmed down, whatever we want to call it, um, how are we going to ramp up? How are we going to get back to work? And uh, they're no better or worse than we are. Uh, we probably want to get our own home in order, our own finances in order. And the book of Haggai is going to call them out. God sent you back to repair the temple first, and you spent your time on yourself. And that's part of the exhortation that they're going to endure. Now, Haggai is mentioned nine times in the book, and very few people doubt that he wrote this short text, but it's attributed to the author as the author. But what is interesting about the book of Haggai is when God commissioned him to be a prophet, he speaks to two people. It's an unusual setup, and it's easy to miss if you don't pay close attention. So let me read the first two verses of chapter 1. And I'll emphasize this notable feature. By the way, we have an undisputed timestamp. We know the date. This is August 24th, 520, to, uh, August 20th to December 24th, 520. No one doubts this. Even if you don't believe the Bible, the dating of the king of Persia, the dating of this text tells us a timeline that is a definite timestamp in the Bible. Well, Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Please look at Haggai's very clear message. There's two people noted, to Zerubbabel and to Joshua. One is a governor and one's a high priest. So back up and think about this. God has sent them repatriating their home after the consequence of their sin. They didn't 
do what they were supposed to do. There's been a 16-year lull in the building progress. And so the message of Haggai is to a governor and a prophet because they're to lead those people. Now, again, we don't want to misapply the Bible to our current situation, but leaders are useful. Leaders are important. Leaders lead groups of people through situations. And so Haggai's not just speaking with a a bullhorn to a bunch of people wandering around the rubble of Jerusalem. He's talking to the governor and the high priest that you need to do this job. You are failing just like God's people are failing. It's very interesting. Again, the purpose is very clear. Rebuild the house of the Lord. Um, And then what I find interesting, and I want you to do this when you read the Bible, look for repetitions, look for terms we see again and again and again. And then if you read a New American Standard Bible five times, you have the word consider, 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 consider. We also have the phrases, the word of the Lord, declares the Lord, thus says the Lord, 38 verses, but these things jump off the page when you watch that repetition. What's the big picture here? You're supposed to do what God said. Consider this, pay attention to this because they've not done it. Well, let me read verses 3 through 11 to expand. So the two people, Zerubbabel and Joshua, are to take this message to the people. And now watch how Haggai expands it. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up, um, go up to the mountains and bring wood and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on the ground, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Any of us who spent time in Texas or areas that get little rain, uh, Texas is obsessed with rainfall. California is obsessed with rainfall. If you don't have adequate rain, you have no crops. You can't produce anything that's going to give you a a livelihood, it's going to give you food, it's going to give you a produce for you to use. Let's go back in time and think a little bit about David. Remember David the king wants to build a house for God. He comes after all his victories and he wants to rebuild the house, uh, build a house for the Lord. And God says, no, uh, you're a man of bloodshed, basically. You're a man of war. You established the kingdom by fighting. I'm going to have your son Solomon build the temple complex. What it does tell us about David is his heart for God, that he loved God. He loved God's law. And this tabernacle complex. Go back in your mind, Exodus 40. This is the one-year anniversary of the Exodus. So they've been now in the wilderness for a year, and God's had them build this massive temple complex where the Ark of the Covenant is the centerpiece, and they've got the, the sacrificial altars, the lavers full of water, the candelabras. All this is designed as the worship center where God put his name 
the place where he put his name so he could be worshiped properly according to the law. So David wants to do this. God says no. So what does David do? He's a brilliant man. Well, I can't build it. I tell you what, I'll get all the building supplies. So he spends all this time getting all the materials that are going to need, as well as the engineers and the artisans that are going to build the actual temple complex that was in Israel. In the meantime, God lets him build his own home, and he builds a beautiful home. This is the king of Israel, after all. It's the beloved king of Israel. So he's going to build, let's call it a palace. He's going to build a beautiful home first, but in the meantime, in the same time, he's going to accumulate all these building materials so that when uh, Solomon is old enough, they'll have the engineers, let's call them the architects, the people that know how to do this, and all the craftsmen to build the temple complex for worship. Now, by the time we come to the New Testament, think about the temple. It doesn't matter anymore. Christ has fulfilled the law. Christ is the new temple complex, if you will. He even makes the comment, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, referring to himself, not the physical temple. But then by 70 AD, when Titus, the Roman emperor, comes along, he destroys everything. And so we've got this new setting. Uh, So we need to think in mind of what the temple was for Haggai's time and how New Testament believers would look at this a little differently. You remember Stephen, the, the uh, young man who comes to Christ and he's stoned to death. He preaches one sermon. It was a great sermon. It got him killed. Uh, one and done. That's not a bad way to go if you're a preacher in my book. Uh, people have been studying his sermon ever since it was written. Listen to what he says when he writes about the temple complex in this setting. Chapter 7 of the book of Acts, Stephen saying, Verse 46, David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. And he's referring to Isaiah here, by the way. Verse 49, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what kind of place for my people, for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? It's almost a mocking. What are you going to build for me? It's like when your third grade child gets you a birthday present. What are they going to get you that you don't already have? I mean, they're going to color you a picture or they're going to go to the store and use your money to buy you a present that probably they wanted for themselves anyway. God's saying, what are you going to do for me? Nevertheless, this was a place that God ordained where sacrifice and worship would be conducted. And remember, Passover is what inaugurates it. The Feast of Pentecost, the morning and evening sacrifices, sacrifices for sin, for guilt offering, all these different sacrificial systems. It was the worship center complex. You couldn't do it in other altars. Those altars were considered pagan altars. God judged them when they did it the wrong way, the wrong place. You may only do it where I tell you. So back to Haggai. They have gone home. The centerpiece of their whole life has been neglected now for 16 years. Haggai says, you got to rebuild the temple. And that's the mission that they're given. And in five years, they are able to rebuild the temple. I want to pull five lessons out of this text And they are timeless and timely. Uh, First of all, to neglect the temple was to neglect God. For the Jew, when they went home, if they didn't have the centerpiece of worship up and running, so to speak, 
they were neglecting God. The morning and evening sacrifices weren't occurring, the cleansing of the temple, the proper maintenance and care, the fires that had to be built, the ashes that had to be dealt with, all this system, it was an elaborate, involved system that took hundreds, if not thousands of priests, especially during seasons like Passover. So this place and name where they were to worship God uh, was in disrepair. And we all know chapter 1, verse 4, for you yourselves dwell in paneled houses while my house lies desolate. You're living in luxury, and the place that's supposed to be the centerpiece is in disrepair. Now, for the record, uh, too many churches and ministries use this verse for building programs and building campaigns and raising money. And let me just say for the record, don't do that. Don't do that. This is not the same. Is there a principle here? Is there a point here? Without question. If we neglect God and we spend more time on ourselves, what are we revealing? They neglected the temple, therefore they neglected God. If you and I neglect our proper worship of God, we are in a sense doing the very same thing. Um, I've heard people even in recent days talk about the church being a sacred space. No, it's not. It's brick and mortar. Uh, Stephen said that once and for all, quoting Isaiah. You're going to build a place for me? Uh, not tr- to be unkind, but when people say, will you come and bless? I've had people ask me to pray for their house, to pray for their offices, to pray for their business. And they go, will you walk around? I go, no. I'll come pray, but I don't believe in sanctifying a place. That's not what the scriptures teach By the New Testament time, the person and work of Jesus Christ has accomplished all this. Interesting, we're the body of Christ. Where we gather, we have the ability to worship him in community, but we don't need a sacred space. You don't have to go to a church to pray. That may give you some emotional comfort. It may give you some sense of being in God's presence. Listen, you're as much as God's presence at home with your Bible on your back porch by the lakeside, by the beach, wherever you like to be with your Bible, and you have to have coffee in my opinion, and and the Word of God, and you're reading His Word, and you're praying, and you're reflecting, uh, that's cultivating your relationship. Now, we're to worship in community, no question. That's an exhortation of Scripture. But it doesn't have to be a sacred space, unlike the Israelite. Secondly, when we neglect God, we are neglecting time in the Word. It's corollary. You, you can't not be in the Word and have an intimate relationship with God. It's impossible. You and I have to be in the Word every day. And as I said over and over, it's not because you have to, it's because you can it's not because you should, it's because it's, you're able to. It's not a, you're a better person if you do it and you're a worse person if you don't. It's that you get to spend time with him. And you and I must reframe this idea. But our neglect of scripture is neglecting God. It's that simple. It may hurt your feelings. I don't intend to too much, provoke you a little bit. But when you and I neglect the word, you're neglecting your relationship with God. There's no, it doesn't mean you have to do it every day or, you know, some bad thing's going to happen. It's a cultivation. Uh, Cindy and I get up in the morning different times typically, and uh, one of the first words we exchange after good morning is, how did you sleep? Now, I don't know why we ask ourselves. Every morning we joke about this. Why don't we ask? And, and then we give a fairly detailed answer about how we slept. It's kind of a dumb little dance we do, but we do it every morning anyway. I guess it's endearing. How did you sleep? Oh, I didn't sleep very good. I heard you get up. Oh, yeah. So whatever. We're cultivating a relationship. 
we're talking, we're spending time together. Now, that's a dumb subject about how you slept. But the point is, if I say nothing to her and she says nothing to me, we haven't communicated. And then we talk about our day. What's going on? Are you, are you working today? Are you showing houses or, you know, whatever? What's your day hold? Obviously, right now, it's a little different. But throughout the course of the day, we're texting, we're talking. We're, why? We're cultivating a relationship. If I don't communicate with Cindy, I don't have a relationship with Cindy. If you don't talk to your children, you don't have a relationship with your children. How much more? If you neglect his word, you're not spending time with him. Cultivate. And the, the great word cultivation is it will produce results. It will have a worship to cultivate and keep the garden from Adam's time was to encourage growth spiritually, to increase our love for the Savior, to keep short account of our sin, to say no to sin more often and yes to him more often. Uh, more often. These alignments occur. So to neglect God, you're going to neglect time in his word. Thirdly, it isn't all about me. It isn't all about me. And this is one I think, and I don't want to be too unkind again, but I think Western Christianity has become absorbed with self. The I, me, my pronouns are more important than he, him, and his. We have worshipped ourselves, our plans, our designs, our job, our company, our family, our children, our parenting, our house, our, our retirement. Our, our, it's, it's all about me. And this is a hard one to fight. I think we have become con- Christian consumers as opposed to committed Christians. How do I consume Christianity to make my life better than to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ? Guilt and shame don't help. They don't help. They make you feel bad, but it doesn't affect real change. And for me, maybe not you, it has to start with, Michael, this isn't all about you. Because the self is a stiff-necked, arched-back person that wants something my way, my time. Uh, I can pay for it. I want it. I want to do this. I'm free to do this. And that I, me, my gets in the way of he, his, and him. And that is a tension uh, that we're going to live with. And just a pointed reminder, it's not all about you. It's all about you. Fourth, material prosperity can contribute to spiritual poverty. The more successful we are in whatever measure you want to use, your, your money, your homes, your retirement funds, your ability to hire people to do things for you that you used to do yourself, uh, your, the growth of your company, those are all great. I, I Don't hear me wrong. I think we can use those things very well. The danger is as we become more materially prosperous, we can also become spiritually impoverished. And that's precisely what happened to the men and women of Haggai's time. Uh, I remember one of my dear uh, mentor, professor, friends with the Lord, Dr. Howard Hendricks, he, he said this hundreds of times. He would ask the question, do, why, why do you think God doesn't bless more Christians financially? I mean, there's so much in our economy and I mean that literally, about being successful, financially independent, being wealthy. And I'm for all that because if I generate wealth, if I have money, I can give more away. I'm less dependent on others. I can take care of people. I can help and minister to people that have trouble. That's a good thing. But if and when that becomes our singular goal, we are becoming spiritually impoverished. And Dr. Hendrick's point was most of us can't handle it. If we were made super wealthy and super successful, most of us would not handle it well. 
That was the implication. You may disagree with him, but I just want to ask you, as I ask myself, the more comfortable I become with my prosperity materially, am I also growing in my spiritual wealth or am I becoming impoverished because I can rest on these things? A friend of Cindy's and mine recently was talking about, I lost 30% of my portfolio. And I said, it's just numbers on paper. He didn't like the answer. It's just numbers on paper. And I said, you know, in God's great kindness, in a couple of years, we'll probably be better better off. We'll probably be back to normal. If, if you have a financial planner like Cindy and me, we were on the phone with them and we talked to them. What do we do? What do we do right? Do we make any changes? And they were talking about the people that they help and how much people had lost. And I was laughing. I said, it's just numbers on a piece of paper right now. I'm not going to cash it in. I'm, my life isn't dependent on that. Sure, I want my grandkids to be blessed, and I want to take care of them in, in ways perhaps that uh, will bless them in their future her- heritage. But um, if I do this at the sacrifice of my spiritual wealth, it doesn't matter eternally. Think of the wealth left behind from major companies and corporations and individuals. Wonderful museums are left Go to the Vanderbilt, go to all kinds of places, Biltmore Hotel, go to Waldorf Astorio. You can see all kinds of massive wealth that left things behind. Did those people have a rich relationship with God or were they spiritually impoverished? And that is part of the exhortation of these oracles in the book of Haggai. Finally, when you and I have our God priorities straight, I think most things fall in line. When you and I are aligned with what God intends for you and me, most of the things we worry about take on new perspective. This happens in a number of ways. One, uh, maybe God will bless you and me as we're faithful. I often say, uh, I'm not a prosperity theologian. I don't believe in if-then. If you give 10%, God's going to do this for you. That's a lie, by the way. But I do believe if you're generous, if you're open-handed, if you're faithful, that puts you in a position that God may bless you. I mean, think about it. Are you going to bless a faithful person or an unfaithful person? The lesson of the stewardship, the talents, is, is perfectly illustrative. The one who did well, God gave more. The one who failed, he took it away. God's looking for faithful people. Does it mean he's always going to bless you? I would say yes and no. It may not be in material or in wealth the way you want it, but there may be spiritual blessings that are far more valuable in fact, that have eternal value that you and I can't measure here and just don't know how to measure here. Um, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Uh, not most, not some, every. And we don't think in those terms. We look at our home, we look at our bigger, better, newer, more, we look at our income, our balance sheet, our retirement, our portfolio, our investments, or what we're giving to our children, our churches, our ministries. Those are important things to look at. They're very important to look at. But as we live faithfully and get our God's priorities straight, those things, maybe he blesses you more importantly or as importantly, your perspective changes. Because those aren't your props Those aren't the things you and I need to depend on. We need to depend upon the sovereign. Uh, Most of us, as we get older, I think your decades, 20s, 30s, and 40s are a little tougher. But in your 50s and 60s, your runway gets shorter, and you start looking back on life, and 
things aren't going to change dramatically. They might, but for most of us, they're not going to change dramatically. And then you start getting comfortable with where you are in your finances and your life and your job and your business, hopefully. And then you smile at your children and grandchildren and watch them building their lives. Your perspective changes dramatically. And what was so important in your 20s and 30s is not that important in your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. In fact, by the time you're 70, 80, you know it's not important at all. It's unfortunate it takes us that long to learn the lesson. But this final point to me is helpful to me personally, and I hope for you it's an encouragement. You get your God priorities straight, things will fall in line. They will take a shape of their own. And this really isn't even that difficult to apply. It's just a matter of do you trust him? Do you believe him? Are you willing to lay down your energies and anxieties and fears about the what is of COVID-19? What is with the business? What is to my portfolio? What is my retirement? What, what, worry, 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 worry. What if I get sick? Does that help? Does it do any good at all? Get your God priorities straight, and those things will begin to take perspective. I mean, think about our priorities. Who wants suffering over comfort? Would you prefer that? You get to suffer or have comfort? You want wealth or you want poverty? You know, take your pick. Of course, we're always going to pick the, you know, the other column. I want to be wealthy and healthy and wise. I don't want to be impoverished and sick and stupid. Uh, yet the alignment is so important in this. Um, part of the dilemma of wealth in the West is we've gotten comfortable. And if there's one sidebar lesson from all this COVID-19 and flattening the curve and self-quarantine. If there's one lesson, you and I aren't in control of anything. He's in control. He's sovereign. And this will be in the timeline of your life, a memory, a mark. Yeah. Remember when COVID-19, remember when so many people lost their jobs? Remember when so many people got sick? Oh, not that many really got sick after all, did they? And we'll, we'll have all this historical analysis of it for the end of time. Let me leave you with the question, perhaps, boldface underline, perhaps God does not bless us more, and I mean that from all categories, spiritually, financially, etc. Perhaps he doesn't bless us more because our priorities are misaligned. And that is something that you and I can change. That's something by the choice of will, by faith, by trust in him, by laying down our obsessions, that I can trust him. He's God after all. I'm not. And let me break it to you. You're not either. Let me close with a quote from G. Campbell Morgan that I've edited significantly. He goes, finally, we in the church age struggle with unnecessary fears from time to time. Think about how long ago this was written and how applicable it is today. The enemy looks strong. We look or feel weak. Things have not changed since antiquity. But our duty is to be patient, to remember, and to believe the promises that the Lord will return and balance the scales of justice one day. He will establish a kingdom on earth. Our duty is to be single-minded in the work. Haggai's people, go rebuild the temple. For you and me, rebuild, cultivate, realign your spiritual life with Christ. That's your foundation. That's your alignment. And watch these things fall in place and work out.
Maybe not the way you or I would want. Maybe not precisely the way we hope. But that's where faith comes in. Do you believe God is better at controlling the world and your life and mine or you? That's not a hard question for me to answer. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates. Thank you.